Welcome to Life Quest Liberty, live in-depth conversations with today's top writers, editors, and spiritual leaders concerning religious freedom around the world. On today's broadcast, we'll examine local and international factors that may be impacting your right to worship and obey God as your conscience dictates. I'm your Life Quest Liberty host, Charles Mills. Today we continue a conversation we began last time with Greg Hamilton. At that time I said that there is a cornerstone belief at Liberty Magazine that religious liberty requires a full and sustained separation of church and state. And what exactly does that mean? How separate do they need to be? And Greg Hamilton gave me a wonderful overview of the history of the separation of church and state, the wall that Thomas Jefferson said needs to be erected between church and state. He also talked about how that wall has been crumbled with a recent Supreme Court decision on the Trinity Lutheran case where a playground surfacing material was paid for by the state government and the uh, church wanted that money and the Supreme Court said they could have that money in spite of the fact that the Missouri, where this was taking place, had what's called the Blaine Amendment, which requires that no religious organizations take money from the government. Well, that has been sort of crumbled down. Thomas Jefferson, what would he feel right now, Greg Hamilton? president of the Northwest Religious Liberty Association. Greg, how would Thomas Jefferson feel now as he watched this happening, if he could? Well, he'd roll over in his grave, <laughs> and he'd probably get up and, and be quite upset. He would not know the America that he helped create. It goes back to the debates between Patrick Henry and Thomas Jefferson. Now, Patrick Henry, you know, is, is regarded very well by most people, but I'm telling you, Patrick Henry didn't do anything for this country. He's, he, I guess what I'm trying to say is he's overrated. He, he basically gave us a statement, give me liberty or give me yes, death, yes. in regard to saying, yes, we must break for Britain and have an American revolution against Britain. But that's about all he contributed. He was fantastic with his rhetoric, but he was horrible at governing. Mm. There was this big, raging debate. It started in 1776 at the beginning of the American Revolution. The Virginia Assembly had this debate. Uh, Patrick Henry came up with what's called a funding assumption bill. It said, okay, you're right. We should disestablish our state church. There should be no state support for a favored church. Okay, so they basically were getting rid of their Anglican establishment. And so Patrick Henry agreed with that. He thought, yeah, there shouldn't be no establishment. But... He said there should be the choice of people, citizens, to use their taxes for the support of their church and their school. Mm -hmm. So it was basically a church and school choice bill. Mm -hmm. And James Madison and Thomas Jefferson, it was Thomas Jefferson's bill, actually, called the Virginia Statute of Religious Freedom. It countered Patrick Henry's funding assumption bill. And it basically said uh, that, no, church and state should be as separate as possible. And in fact, when people argue strict separation, I wouldn't say that Jefferson was a totally strict separationist, but he definitely was almost a completely strict separationist. Uh, he believed in uh, teaching religion at the university level, uh, that it was useful, good for the morals of man. So he was a utilitarian in his thinking that way. Uh, he thought that the state should send missionaries to the reform and conversion of Indians, for example, in his Northwest Ordinance. Um, so, I mean, he's, you know, Jefferson was consistent in his own thinking, but he would appear to be inconsistent 
when scholars debate whether he really believed in the separation of church-state. But he did. In his letter to the Danbury Baptist Church, made it fundamentally clear that he believed that both the free exercise and establishment clauses of the First Amendment Mm -hmm. clearly created a separation between church and state where it says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. He wrote to the Danbury Baptist Church that this clearly is a separation. This is a, this is a principle. It may not be actually worded in the First Amendment, but it is a principle. It's a governing principle. That constitutional principle is there, embedded in the very wording of the First Amendment. It's a check and balance on each clause. So the free exercise clause says, hey, there shouldn't be a slippery slope towards hostility against religion or towards atheism. And the Establishment Clause, which is a separation of church and state clause, basically says, hey, we don't want religion dictating its will and controlling or mandating its will to the state. Mm -hmm. And so that was an internal check and balance right there in the very First Amendment. It was James Madison who gave us that balance. But the very original intent of that First Amendment actually started in the Virginia Assembly in this debate between Patrick Henry and Thomas Jefferson, Mm -hmm. and that is over funding and government support of religion. And so Jefferson and Madison said, uh, you know, hey, no, this uh, Patrick Henry's approach, which Patrick Henry called a non-discriminatory approach, as long as you know, no church was discriminated against. Everybody could receive funding equally. Well, Jefferson said, that's ludicrous. Money will mostly go to the Anglican church, which dominates the state, and religious minorities will be discriminated against because, you know, they probably won't get the money that they want, and there'll be problems. It lends itself towards corruption. Anytime the state is in charge of giving money out to churches and or even letting the citizenry determine Uh, how they use their tax money, it creates a problem. And so that's what they said. They argued that, no, there should be a strict separation. Madison came out with his memorial and remonstrance, which saved the day while Jefferson was gone to uh, Paris as the ambassador. It was a long process. This was a long debate from 1776 clear to 1786. Hmm. And finally, Madison and Jefferson's bill prevailed, and uh, Patrick Henry lost the argument, and that became the sort of the foundation for the crafting of the First Amendment in 1789 in the very first Congress in New York. But Patrick Henry basically said, hey, as long as this funding goes forth in a non-discriminatory way, it's all right. Well, that non-preferential doctrine or non-discriminatory doctrine that Patrick Henry put forward is now winning in today's courts. It's basically saying, hey, monies can flow directly from the federal government to religion and churches and religious institutions as long as it's used for non-sectarian means and or non-sectarian teaching or the use of that money for the teaching or indoctrinization. In other words, if you need materials, you need remedial education services for handicapped people or other people with special learning disabilities, or you need money for a playground, such as in this Trinity Lutheran case that you introduced, uh, they're saying, hey, as long as it's incidental, as long as it's for non-sectarian use, and as long as it's done in a non-discriminatory way, and as long as that money is non-discriminatorily applied, then everything's fine. And the problem that I have with that is, again, it opens the doors 
basically for state control of the church. And that's what I didn't mention in the first program, is that it opens the floodgates for the state to regulate churches now. Yes. Okay? Yes. In other words, that's why I think liberals, the two liberals, the, the Supreme Court, the, the ruling in the Trinity case was 7-2, to two, two liberals came across the line and joined the conservatives. That was Stephen Breyer and Elena Kagan. Justice Sonia Sotomayor and Justice Ruth Ginsburg voted against it, and they stuck to principle. I think actually some liberals like this. I'll tell you why. It opens the doors for federal regulation of churches, meaning that if there's any abuse in a church, or let's say a church hires someone, and uh, they fire someone in a discriminatory way, at least according to the state. Mm -hmm. It violates the anti-discrimination laws, and the state can step in. Prior to that, that was not the case. And I think it opens the floodgates for all kinds of things. I think it opens up floodgates for saying, well, churches, you have to hire people who don't meet your moral standards Mm -hmm. and for lifestyle and living and so forth. And so, therefore, you have to hire a certain quota of people in your institutions. It opens up all kinds of problems in terms of federal regulation. And a lot of people don't see the slippery slope, but I believe it's there and I believe it's real. But of course, even though you say that, a church still has the opportunity to say no to government funding. Am I correct? Yeah, that's true. But let, let me ask you something. I mean, how, who's, who's going to refuse that money? I don't know of any country, whether it's Canada yeah. or any country in the world, when that money is available, they use it. Yeah. And it's because offerings have dried up. In fact, offerings are going to dry up even more when our parishioners realize sure. that sure. all this government money is coming in. Yeah. Contrary to popular belief, you know, even it's true that Christians are the biggest givers in the world. I mean, very generous. But, you know, with economic hard times and financial issues, with the shrinking middle class, that funding is drying up. Churches are having a hard time. And so it's easy in these kinds of economic times where the middle class has shrunk to nearly nothing Mm -hmm. to where that money is drying up. And so it's easy for them to say, well, we need to, uh, we need to have government support. It leads to all kinds of parade of horribles. People just lack discernment in this area. I just really believe that. And in fact, in so many areas, but this one in particular, you know, I was talking with a friend of yours, Amira Al-Haddad, who is in the Narla chapter down there in the south in Atlanta, and she made a statement once. She, I, I really like it. She says that there are no shekels without shackles. There are no shekels without shackles. And that sounds like what you're saying. Am I right? Well, yeah. He owns the gold, makes the rules, yeah. is the most frequent uh, statement yeah. that you hear. I mean, the government has the money, and when they give it to you, guess what? You're going to be regulated. Mm. You can't have your cake and ice cream, too. But now I guess you can. I don't know. It's, it, the times we're living in is pretty amazing. Well, Greg, what would you say to a local church? What would you say to your local church who is considering getting some funding for lighting in the parking lot or recarpeting the... What would you say to them in the next 60 seconds here that will bring forth what you believe they should be doing? Well, I would say, what else will you want in the future? Mm. I would say, okay, that seems fine. It seems innocent enough. All right. You know, fine. Go get your money. If it's a one-time gift and you're not dependent on that money, great. But if you become dependent because you make yourself dependent, then you're not exercising self-discipline. And that's the problem is 
human nature is one in which we don't exercise self-discipline yes, very often, yes, and it's just true. bottom line. When the temptation's there, we go for it. So I, my question would be, what else are you going to want in the future? Now that you've taken the forbidden fruit from the tree, like in the Garden of Eden, now what else will you want? That's really what's going on. It's, it's the temptation of what else can we get with this federal money? Oh, look, we can get this. We can go into this storehouse. We just go into that big market, and we can just go, oh, we want this, and we want that. I mean, it's like a little child going in, and, Mommy, I want this. I want that. Mommy, why can't I have that? Mommy, forgive me for that illustration, but really that's what it boils down to, Charles. Mm-hmm. Greg Hamilton, president of the Northwest Religious Liberty Association, Greg, thank you so much for being open and honest with us here and sharing your heart. That's what we just heard. We heard your heart and we heard the concern in your voice and we appreciate that very much. Thanks for being with us today, Greg. Thank you. And a listener, until next time, this is Charles Mills along with Greg Hamilton inviting you to rest in the freedom, the freedom of God's love. Goodbye, everyone. If you'd like more information about LifeQuest Liberty, call Three Angels Broadcasting Network at 618-627-4651 or email us through our website at 3abn.org. Join us again next week at this same time as we examine more of the threats and challenges facing your religious freedom. May God keep the flames of liberty burning in your heart today. Today.